Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click Ratings and Reviews. You can also follow me on Facebook.com slash RunPaleo or on Twitter at RunPaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Dr. Mary Newport. She is she has practiced neonatology in Florida since 1983 and has served as a founding medical director for two newborn intensive care units and is currently in full-time practice as a neonatologist in Tampa Bay area. In September of 2011, she published her book, Alzheimer's Disease, What If There Was a Cure? Dr. Mary Newport, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to come on. Yeah, it's great to talk to you today. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background about um, how you got interested in Alzheimer's disease and then publishing a book called What If There Was a Cure? Yeah, um, well, as you said, I'm a neonatologist, so I take care of sick and premature newborns. So Alzheimer's is kind of at the opposite end of the age spectrum. Um, but the reason I'm so interested is that my husband, Steve, has early onset Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And um, he's 63 now. He was about 51 years old when he started having problems, so um, the early form of the disease. And um, basically, he stayed home to take care of our children, but he was an accountant and worked full-time as an accountant from our home, from my practice, you know, for a lot of years and, and actually functioned very well in that position. And then, you know, when he was 51, he started having problems with his accounting work. Uh, that was the most noticeable thing at first, that he would make some uh, really big boo-boos on the payroll, you know, uh, writing checks for people, sometimes several thousand more than they were supposed to get, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then procrastinating on doing tax returns was kind of the next thing we started seeing. And he just had a lot of trouble getting himself organized to do that kind of thing. And um, But then he started having problems remembering if he'd been to the bank and the post office. And that seemed really abnormal for me. I didn't think I would ever forget that on a given day if I'd done that. And he started misplacing mail, and I didn't know if he'd been there or not because he couldn't remember. And something just wasn't right. And um, he was also depressed at that point. And the doctor that we took him to um, felt that we, you know, we talked about dementia, but he thought it was more likely that his memory issues were related to depression. And now I think it is um, that the depression was probably more related to the memory issues, you know, Mm -hmm. that he, you know, realized he was having trouble. I mean, he told me that many times that he knew something was wrong, Mm -hmm. seriously wrong. And, um, and he became very depressed over his inability to function the way he had. So, but he was put on an antidepressant. It didn't really help, you know, the memory issues at all. And, um, when he was in 2003, so he was 53 at that point, mm-hmm. we moved to Spring Hill, Florida for me to open a, a new newborn intensive care unit. It was about an hour north of where we had lived. So really not too, too far from where we had lived for many years. But he had great difficulty learning his way around. And it's a relatively small town, just a few north, south, east, west arteries. 
and he was always confused about what road he was on, which direction he was heading, and that was just very atypical for him. He'd always been able to find his way around before, and he could no longer seem to read a map, and um, you know that was concerning. And then he started uh, spending a huge uh, amount of time in our garage looking for things, and you know he'd have in his mind that he wanted to find something like the hitch for his truck in the morning, and I'd leave for work, you know, at the hospital, and I'd come back at dinner time, and he'd still be out there looking for it, uh-huh. and that was just very odd. And then he couldn't even remember what he was looking for at that point, but he was still looking for it. Mm-hmm. It was just odd behavior and. So we, uh, I talked to our local Alzheimer family organization to get a doctor recommendation, somebody who deals with Alzheimer's, a neurologist. And so we saw him, and he did a whole battery of tests. And, you know, one of them was uh, a simple memory test called the uh, mini mental status exam. It's a 30-point test. And, for, you know, most people will get 30 points, and occasionally you might miss a point, but that's still considered normal. But he uh, only got 23 out of 30 points, and that was kind of a shock, and um, one of them is drawing a, a picture, like intersecting trapezoids, and uh, it was very bizarre looking, you know, uh, it didn't look anything like a trapezoid, um, and it was just very kind of interesting to see, you know, something like that, but for us it was shocking, you know, that he did have, you know, something obvious going on and um, basically things like B12 deficiency and hypothyroidism that can cause memory impairment, those types of things were ruled out and he actually had a normal MRI at that point, which is pretty typical for somebody in the early stages of Alzheimer's and uh, but the doctor felt that he did have some type of dementia and started following him periodically and um, every six months or so he would come back and then he did see worsening and he started developing some physical symptoms too, like a tremor. And so he felt that he most likely had Alzheimer's type dementia. Um, and we went for a second opinion at the Bird Alzheimer's Center in Tampa and they did a whole battery of cognitive testing and they agreed that he had uh, most likely early onset Alzheimer's. And so he was put on medications at that point, the typical ones that help, you know, are used for Alzheimer's and they didn't really do much, but you know, we kept them going anyway for actually quite a few years. Mm-hmm. So you started to look into the idea of possibly adding coconut oil to his diet and seeing if that might help. How did you get interested in coconut oil and that? Yeah, and that? yeah that was really an accident. And I recognized it because of my job, the type of work I do as a neonatologist. Um, we were looking for clinical trials for Steve. And up to that point, he wouldn't qualify for anything, which was very frustrating because he had the history of depression. Mm. Uh, retrospectively, it's very bizarre, you know, because if you had early onset Alzheimer's, wouldn't you be depressed, you know? So, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, we couldn't get them into any um, clinical trials, but then they kind of um, stopped using that as an exclusion criteria. Mm-hmm. And there were two new um, drugs that were about to start clinical trials in Tampa and in St. Pete, Florida, and um, they both were aimed at reducing plaque in the brain. Um, people who you know, study Alzheimer's or have a loved one with Alzheimer's are usually aware that there's a problem with plaques and tangles in the brain, that those are the hallmarks of the disease, you know, at at autopsy, that's what they look for to Mm -hmm. confirm Alzheimer's. And um, these two drugs were aimed at reducing plaque in the brain. One was a vaccine and one was an oral medication. And uh, belief was that if you could remove plaque from the brain, that the person could potentially improve because these are like toxic to the neurons, these plaques. So um, he was scheduled for screenings for these two drugs on two back-to-back days, and he had screened for one of them two weeks earlier, 
and um, he got only 12 out of 30 on the MMSC at that point. So he had deteriorated quite a lot, you know, from, um, you know, when he was first diagnosed. Mm-hmm. He was no longer able to do any accounting, simple math, you know, even turn on a computer. He could no longer do any of that, you know, and this is in uh, 2008 um, that we're, we're looking for these clinical trials. So um, he was scheduled again to try again, and then this other clinical trial became available. So you can only be in one clinical trial. So the night before the first screening, I was on the Internet looking for the risks and the benefits of the two drugs to try to help us decide, say he gets accepted into both studies, which one do we pick? Mm-hmm. And then I just happened upon a press release for a third treatment, um, and it was a medical food. At that time, it was called AC1202 or Ketosin, and it's now called Axona, A-X-O-N-A. And it's... Um, uh, it was not going to be coming out uh, at least for another year at the point that I was reading about it. But what it said was that it improved the memories of nearly half of the people with Alzheimer's who took it. And I thought that was intriguing because you don't hear that about any of the Alzheimer's drugs that it improves memory. So, um, but it didn't say what it was or how it worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I explored further and I found their patent application on a, a website called Free Patents Online, uh, where you can look up virtually, you know, basically any U.S. patent. Um, and it had their application on there. It was 75 pages long. And it started off by discussing an aspect of Alzheimer's that I really was not very familiar with, that I hadn't heard much about, that it's a type of diabetes of the brain or um, called uh, type 3 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And um, what I learned from that, uh, there are a number of different groups that have been studying it, but a group at Brown University head by, headed by Dr. Suzanne Delamonte and um, uh, Mark Wands, they uh, have studied um the uh, brains of people who died with Alzheimer's, basically. And what they had done in 2005 was to, um, um, they reported basically that uh, they had studied brains of people that did not have type 1 or type 2 diabetes that had died with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that there is insulin deficiency and insulin resistance in the Alzheimer's brain. In every brain they looked at, this Mm -hmm. was a problem. So they uh, coined the term type 3 diabetes to indicate Alzheimer's disease. And then they did, and this was in 2005, and then in 2008 they did further studies where they um, um, had looked at Alzheimer's brains at all different stages, you know, from the earliest stage to the most uh, severe stages. And again, these people did not have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And what they found was that the insulin deficiency and insulin resistance is present in the areas of the brain where Alzheimer's starts and that over time with each stage of the disease that it worsens and that it progresses throughout the brain until it's very severe. And um, so, you know, basically um, it's probably most similar to type 2 diabetes, although insulin deficiency is part of type 1 diabetes. Um, so are you are you saying there that when you say type uh, type three diabetes or diabetes mm-hmm. of the brain, that means that the brain's not able to use glucose efficiently? Is that right. correct? Right, right. And it's it's not the entire brain that's affected by it, but it starts in um, an area called the hippocampus and amygdala, uh, which are associated with memory. Um, that's where this problem seems to be to start, and it, but it does progress throughout the brain. Um, but a good parts of the brain, you know, certain parts of the brain can still use glucose normally. Okay. Uh, okay. So, um, you know, but what happens is, you know, with the insulin resistance, there's, there's also a problem with the insulin receptors on these cells. 
Um, there's a group at, um, let's see, it's a, I think Case Western in Cleveland that have um, found that the insulin receptors, instead of being on the cell membrane, that they're buried into the, in the cell. So they're somehow being prevented from coming to the surface of the cell membrane. And I've read that there's other receptors like this that are affected that way in Alzheimer's. But effectively, you know, when um, glucose is the primary fuel for the for brain cells and, and most of our other cells, most of the time, mm-hmm. um, in our usual diet, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a relatively high carbohydrate in in the USA, and um, uh, you need insulin to get glucose into the cells, and okay. you, those insulin receptors need to be there too. And um, with as you start losing, you know, this ability to get glucose into the cell, if you don't have some other alternative source of fuel the cell is going to malfunction and it's going to die off eventually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing uh, about humans is that we have something like 100 billion neurons. So this process is believed that it's going on for at least 10 or 20 years before you start seeing symptoms, you know, before enough cells start dying off that you start seeing obvious symptoms. Okay. Um, they've done PET scans in people who have fa- strong family history of Alzheimer's that are at risk. And even in their 20s, some people already have decreased glucose uptake in the parts of their brain. Really? Yeah, okay. but they're they're normal. I mean, they're they're not. They don't seem to have symptoms at that point, you know. So it's really uh, decades later, you know, that they start having symptoms because really of the sheer number of uh, neurons that we have, and there's something like 100 trillion synapses, which are the connection between neurons. Mm-hmm. So. Um, <clears throat> so how does the coconut oil play in affect it? Yeah. Okay. My, I mean, does that basically gets that? your alternate fuel source is what you're talking. alternative fuel and okay. so this um when you are starving uh go on a fast or you know like there are many people in the world that are starving you know like uh in the philippines right now you know there are people that aren't getting mm-hmm. uh food um you tap into your fat and this is just uh it's an evolutionary thing it's probably one reason humans have been able to exist as a species is because we can switch over, including our brains, very easily from using glucose to using ketones. Mm. And um, ketones are a product of fat breakdown. You know, you break down fat. Some of your like your muscles, your heart muscle can use fatty acids instead of glucose very easily mm-hmm. um, in this situation. Um, but they, the long-chain fatty acids don't cross into the very easily into the, the brain. They don't cross the blood-brain barrier very well. And uh, But your liver converts some of the fatty acids to ketones, and ketones do cross very well. Um, when you have elevated ketones, it actually increases blood flow to the brain, and then the brain can take up these ketones and just, you know, they're used up very quickly, you know, once they cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, taken up by the neurons. And uh, they don't need insulin to get into the cells. They just, and it's much less complex process, actually, to get ketones in than to get glucose into cells. Uh, fewer enzymes are needed, and... Um, different transporters, um, but um, there's a group in Canada, um, Stephen Cunane, at C-U-N-N-A-N-E, um, he has a ketone PET scanner, and he does ketone and glucose PET scans back-to-back. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and he just, um, they just released a report last week at a conference uh, out in San Diego um, that the Alzheimer brain can, uh, you know, it, uh, one, some of the feeling out there was that there's decreased glucose uptake in those parts of the brain because those neurons are dead. But what he found when he did the ketone PET scan, that it's normal, that the, the key, those cells and those parts of the brains that are not using glucose are taking up ketones normally, like a normal healthy brain. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So those cells get, so this really supports 